I'm Adam Sutherland, I'm the director of Grisdale Arts, and I'm introducing the Juno Project's podcast, It's Been a Privilege, a look at how you might dismantle the hierarchical structure of the art world, starting with the white male. The three of us are white men, Phil Duckworth, Ben Sadler, both from Birmingham, first came to Grisdale 20 years ago as fresh-faced students and have periodically worked with us on mostly community projects for the last 20 years. We're also lucky to have an interview with Fiona Venables, the new director at the Milton Keynes Arts Centre, who was previously at Tully House, so uh, somebody that I know from the past. And with Indy Hunjan, who has been reappraising the National Trust and thinking about different ways in which the National Trust can diversify its audiences. Phil and Ben employ a dramatic device throughout the podcast, that of an awkward farewell party, something we've all had to endure probably many times, certainly by my age you have. It's been a privilege. How to dismantle the impact of culture and class on the production and presentation of culture, a Juno Projects podcast for Grisdale Arts Farmyard Radio. Adam Sutherland, the long-standing director of Grisdale Arts, invited us to talk about this subject using the figure of the white male to represent the art institution and its leadership. Hello. Hello. We're two white male artists. I'm Phil. I'm Ben. We've been working together for nearly 20 years. We've worked on gallery exhibitions with artist-run spaces and independent curators, as well as large establishments. We've had commercial representation and been in art fairs, worked in schools and community centres, and worked on public art projects, often simultaneously. Despite being able to make our living as artists, we could only think of the negative connotations of being a middle or upper-class white male in the art world when Adam presented us with the topic. It's an establishment that has surely overstayed its welcome for perpetuating a hierarchical system, an establishment rightly scrutinised for gatekeeping, abuse and bullying that underrepresents people from working class backgrounds and people of colour. We began to imagine a retirement party for the white male in the arts, accompanied by leaving gifts of fashionable lumpy ceramics and a craft paper card filled with messages from the art world. Hey, I've just heard. So you're really going. Happy retirement. It's going to be quite a different place without you. So I guess there's some things that you're taking with you. The notion of singular genius. The use of others' labour and ideas as a support for your own. The endless amount of space that was used to feed your ego. (laughs) Sorry, work. Yeah, we miss all of that. Happy retirement. Love, Cathy. On a personal level, we've found the art world to be quite balanced in terms of gender and sexual orientation, although much less so in terms of the allocation of roles, and particularly in terms of race, disability and neurodiversity. Institutions still have a disproportionate number of middle and upper class white males as directors and leaders, although we've been fortunate to work with a large number of organisations that are led by women. To be fair, we have also enjoyed working with institutions led by men. In fact, Our experience of the art world has been overwhelmingly positive. This may well be because we're so polite, but is most likely a privilege of our position as university-educated white men with broadly middle-class upbringings. Yeah, but I grew up on a council estate. Well, very near one. Didn't you go to grammar school? Didn't you go to a private school? 
Like a band that doesn't want to be labelled as Britpop, our own relationship with our class is a little nuanced. While we're definitely Britpop, our family history, education and finances have elements of country, grunge and grime. One of us went to a fee-paying private school, but followed it up with an art degree at a former polytechnic. The other one went to a state-run grammar school, went on to study art at the Ruskin in Oxford, and followed that up with an MA at the Professional Artist Finishing School, the Royal College of Art in London. One of us listened to Radio 4 to get to sleep until his mid-thirties. The other currently listens to Radio 3 in the car, if there are no passengers. One of us has parents from rural Norfolk and Bolton. The rural Norfolk mum lived on a farm without electricity, but studied for qualifications after bringing up her family, and became a university learning support tutor. The Bolton dad had aunties with missing fingers from the cotton mills, had siblings in the poorhouse for a period of time, because the family couldn't afford to feed them, and joined the army at 16, eventually becoming a major with no trace of a Bolton accent. Both provided a comfortable, middle-class life for their family, with a focus on education and culture. The other's parents came from Sandwell in the Black Country and a North Yorkshire farming village, respectively. The Sandwell mum had eight brothers and sisters and slept four to a bed until, against the odds, she left home to train as a teacher. The North Yorkshire dad suffered from mental health issues for most of his life and although he did well academically, he found it hard to be a part of the world around him. And so the Sandwell mum had to bring up their only child pretty much single-handedly. When those two boys from those two families got together, though, they forged the bastion of middle-class art production that is Juno Projects. Over email, Adam pointed out that our first outline for the podcast seemed a bit defeated, and that he was interested in looking at the white male in a more positive light, while at the same time acknowledging the attendant issues. In particular, Adam was interested in the impact that class has on the subsequent production of culture, to misquote Adam. Historically, being a posh white male offers access and exposure to culture, and this impact of class drives the production of culture. Adam seemed to be saying that this could be a good thing as well as a negative thing. We spoke to Adam. It's a difficult subject to talk about openly because you're, whatever you say, you think you can hear the kind of the other, the other side of that, like men bleating on about complaining. It's men's group territory. Adam has been the director of Grisdale Arts since 1999, and we've known him since 2001, when we made our first piece of work as Juno Projects on Coniston Water for an event called Grisdale Live. We wanted to find out why Adam had chosen this topic, because, as ever, we were worried we'd get it wrong. I suppose I kind of feel redundant a little bit, and I feel, I suppose I also feel quite kind of I guess that most people who work in institutions probably feel a little bit kind of, yeah, redundant, like they ought to be thinking of another way for things to work. And there's a kind of knee-jerk response, which is a bit of a cliche that um, that's, seems to be kind of going on in the art world where perhaps who you are is more important than what you do, in a way. While Adam jokes about feeling redundant, he's also gearing up to work harder than ever. At the 10-year anniversary dinner for Lawson Park, Grisdale's HQ, Adam gave a funny, wistful and moving speech in which he reflected on having been the director for 20 years, stating that he was planning the next 20 years to be his most productive. Given the title of this podcast, how has Grisdale's programme addressed diversity? I mean, it's something that has always come up at Grisdale, the gender issue, more gender than anything else, but obviously diversity in a rural place comes up quite a bit. 
I guess Grasdale's always run a fairly relatively diverse program. And I think the male-female balance has, has changed. It changes depending on the program. When we first worked at Grasdale, Adam was new to the role and was beginning to turn a traditional sculpture park into a contemporary arts organisation. Grasdale has expanded from its forest home to work internationally, as well as focusing closely on its local community. We have experienced the way Adam views artists and the work they do. The community that is experiencing the work is far more important than the artist's name, reputation or wishes. In conversation, we found we were increasingly talking about the role of the art institution rather than the figure of the white male specifically. Adam said that for him, the issue is really about the hierarchy of the art world, represented by the white middle-class male. But the question is, how does this change? How is the hierarchy dismantled and how does a new system avoid replicating the old one? as someone else takes the place at the top, quoting Adam. All pretty straightforward, then. It was initiated by the idea that there was a number of things that initiated it, actually. Partly, so Lawson Park and Grisdale's operation here has, for the last kind of 10 years, been very focused on being useful and being useful to the local community. I mean, we've still done art things, but, you know, I've always seen the art stuff as a, as a bit of um, light relief, actually. <laughs> Just to sort of escape from the kind of intensity of always having to produce things that were going to work, that were successful, that you're doing stuff with people in, and it's their real lives. We discussed the way that Grisdale tried to devise a new way of working through its work with the Coniston Institute, which it undertook for around 10 years, developing a programme of events and working with the community in a way that meant the formerly disused building would be used again regularly and become a valuable community resource. Grisdale dedicated a significant amount of time to making the Institute work, reassembling a community around it and making it self-sufficient. They wanted it to have a useful role in the village and a function in the community. All of this worked well, creating a self-empowered and self-determining community around the Institute. The end, the end result was that we weren't really needed. So the end game is you, you, become, you become obsolete in that process, which is good in lots of ways. Adam wanted change to be a constant part of the way things worked, escaping from a traditional hierarchical fixed way of working. But not everyone involved in the Institute felt the same, and Grisdale have now parted ways with the Institute, which will run its own programme of events and hires. So the thing that I think probably there was the most objection to in the Institute, in the, in the village, was this idea from me all the time that everything had to keep being reinvented. I mean, I used to say, like, every five years you need to reinvent it, but actually you need to reinvent it kind of every day for a healthy culture. Why, why wouldn't you? Grisdale are now working on a new large-scale project, The Valley, aiming to connect the resources and communities of the valley around Coniston Water, where they're based. There's an opportunity to buy a piece of land and, um, and a building, and so, yeah, potential to maybe make a new kind of, I don't really want to say the word <laughs> arts institution. <laughs> a new thing. Following their work with the Coniston Institute, Adam is now looking at how the new project should be run. Who is it that makes it happen? And do I end up being in a kind of hierarchical position as a director and as the person who's kind of this is what this is the vision, this is how it ought to be, it should be like this. It's clear that change is needed to keep things moving. But how does change happen? 
New, exciting and diverse ideas are great, but to gain traction, do these ideas end up changing to fit within the institutional hierarchy, rather than the hierarchy changing to fit these ideas? Here we are, back at the white male's retirement from the arts. He's quite old, this guy. Like, really old, and heavy with the weight of history. Which makes it hard for him to move. So how do you move him? Can you move him? Even when he's retired, will he still just be sat there in the background? The leaving present is being given. A lumpy ceramic mug with a thick, drippy glaze. He's reading more of the messages in his card. Enjoy your retirement, it's been a long time coming. Unfortunately, we forgot to do a whip round for a leaving gift. But we figured the gender pay gap and years of privilege might just do the trick. Hi, I heard you retiring. Think of all that space you'll have now. And think of that monumental new landscape of space you'll leave behind. Happy retirement. Change in the art world is a huge topic. We wanted to talk to people who are dealing with these ideas on a daily basis. We thought about people that we have recently worked with or are currently working with, and two people sprang immediately to mind. Fiona Venables, the newly appointed director of Milton Keynes Art Centre, and Indy Hunjan, cultural programmes consultant for the National Trust. We admire them both for the risks and challenges they take on in the work they do. We spoke firstly to Fiona Venables. I am about six months into a new position, and that's as director of Milton Keynes Art Centre. It is an organisation that was founded in the 1970s as one of that generation of community arts organisations, the community art movement that came up at that time. She is currently working on developing the Art Centre links by working with genuinely socially engaged artists and developing longer term relationships with communities, asking them what they want and how they could be supported by the Art Centre. She says this approach is much slower and much more costly but it's the approach she wants to take in order to work with the community in a new and more meaningful way. We're looking at how we um, work with communities in terms of talking very early on about what it is they want to do with us, um, if they want to work with us, how they are involved in terms of shaping the projects really from the inception, but also as an organisation in terms of um, coming in and having that um, advice in terms of what it is we are there to do. Um, and it's that that set takes a certain degree of courage and a certain and it's a risk um, in terms of allowing that conversation to take place. But it's the only way to do so, which has, I think, any kind of meaningful outcomes. Fiona talked about the risk of homogeneity in the arts and the challenges of welcoming all members of the community into the arts centre. As a sector, and um, the arts isn't alone in this, there is a tendency that we have similar views. We are naturally attracted to people um, who share certain views. Um, and it's finding opportunities to be challenged and accommodate people with other views, but within limitations, you know, I think sort of, and to be clear as to what those limitations are. So I would be clear as an organisation that we will say no to bigotry in terms of if somebody is, it has a sexist view or a race a racist view, then they are not, not welcome in terms of being part of that. So it's deciding what, what is welcome and who is welcome and who is not. At the same time, there is a danger that we only extend a welcome when the people we are welcoming share our outlook. 
Fiona says that in the wake of Brexit, she was shocked by the reaction of many around her. You know, you had this liberal culture and then suddenly people were talking about people needing to sit an examination before they can vote um, or how stupid people were. And there was sort of, it's, it was so easily broken down in terms of this sort of liberal sort of perception of us all being welcoming um, and integrated society. With that simple referendum, you saw the bigotries that actually exist within an organisation. Um, so I'd use that as an, an example that, you know, we should be able to talk to people about what's happening in the world without imposing our own sort of value systems upon that. What are the pitfalls for organisations when they aim to become more inclusive? There is a danger still that we look simply at um, representation in terms of the colour of skin or background. But uh, and actually, you know, we still have a tendency within the art world to say, OK, we, we want to work with people from other ethnic backgrounds, but you still need to talk the way you still need to have the same views of us. You still want you still I would still want you to like the same work that we like. I go to so many meetings and people talk about how do we change things, how do we create a more diverse, more inclusive environment. What are Tate doing? And it's kind of like, well, why worry about what Tate's doing? You know, if you're going to change things, start with the smaller organisations that can be more fleet of foot. And I think, you know, revolution tends to happen from a grassroots. So if you have an organisation which is, you know, as I say, you you define the parameters in which people are welcomed but you are much more inclusive of people from different sort of economic backgrounds and from that also you will get across because a lot of the um, uh, uh, diversity sort of uh, racial diversity exists within lower economic areas sadly but having conversations of what people are interested in and being part of rather than simply saying we want you but you have to be interested in this or you have to be able to talk to this person. Fiona suggests that organisations can work towards making the art world more diverse by expanding the definition of what an artist is. Again, sort of just finding, um, getting artists to work with each other, um, extending out what is an artist, um, breaking down some of that presumption as to um, hierarchies within this international artist who will come in and then they work with the local artist at a slightly lesser rate and then the local and then you have the learning and participation person who's doing free workshops on a Saturday for the kids because they can't afford to pay them. Fiona raised the issue of access to the arts in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and how the response of organisations is something that can shape ongoing access to the arts. Um, people who have disabilities and, and mobility issues, um, what they've said is that welcome to our world. And why suddenly is the online offer everything we've wanted? Why so now only when able-bodied people aren't able to leave the house do we have access to the things we've been asking for for decades? Fiona says that the response to the pandemic has helped clarify the way organisations can connect to their communities. What has been clear is that we have to. Actually, we have to make art available to more people. And we have to be able to talk to more people through art. Fiona outlines the ways that Milton Keynes Art Centre will be working with their community and making long-lasting connections. Well, we're really keen not to do that thing of picking up certain people to work on certain projects and dropping them. Um, really keen to start slowly 
um, start building up relationships um, with communities, uh, community-based organisations in terms of talking to them over years as to what sort of projects they're interested in. And some of that, you know, you begin with the wellbeing agenda that they people want to just make stuff, and that's fine. But there are other organisations, and there, but through sort of just giving them access to to um, making stuff, um, giving them a garden if they want to grow stuff, um, you can start to sort of have those conversations, and and sort of people be, are naturally ambitious. Once they have one thing, they tend to want more. In this podcast, we wanted to explore the issues that artists and organisations faced when they wanted to change or develop the way they worked. One of the main issues that Fiona sees is the current culture of leadership. And I say it's not specific to the arts, but it is intrinsic, endemic to the arts. There is still a macho culture around what leadership is. And I say that's not specifically within the arts, but you know, I've been to, I generally hate leadership training. I did. I have had a couple of my sort of um, a couple of times in my life been forced into them, um, and you still listen to um, men always um, talking about how, as a leader, you have to be give yourself a hundred percent. You have to be on the end of a phone at all times. You have to be able to sort of travel at the drop of a hat, and at the same time being surrounded by men and women with young children and thinking, how does this help them. If you look in terms of um, leadership, women in leadership roles, most of them don't have children or they're certainly not, they're very few even a few, a primary carers for those children. Um, in the same way, the men in leadership roles have generally, sorry, and this is bad, have got a woman sort of looking after their children if they do have them. That's That's something that has changed too slowly and there's still an expectation that yeah leaders should should just give themselves there's no accommodation for different ways of working still and I, I really would like that to change. We're back at the retirement party. He's still reading his card. He's very impressed that everyone cares so much. Wonderful, quite wonderful. For your retirement, I thought I'd share a quote from Maya Angelou, who said, "I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did." but people will never forget how you made them feel. Dear International Museum Director, 30 years as a director comes to an anticipated and some say welcomed end. Congratulations on your much overdue retirement. The staff have dug deep and bought you some fishing rods for your boat. All the best. How does one begin to question and challenge an institution? Indy Hunjan is the director of Carla Fool a bespoke project management, event planning and development agency. She is also the former director of Brighton Hip Hop Festival, later known as Rising Styles, and currently works as cultural programmes consultant for the National Trust. We recently worked with Indy on a project at Mosley Road Baths in Birmingham, a Victorian bath still in operation despite many challenges. The baths is run by a charitable incorporated organisation who are working in partnership with the National Trust and a number of other heritage organisations. The project culminated in an exhibition at the Baths that was sadly cut short by the current COVID-19 pandemic. We were really impressed by Indy's approach throughout the project to working in partnership and by her approach to questioning, challenging and constructively developing these relationships. We were keen to find out more. 
I've been working in the arts now for, gosh, well over 30 years. Every few years, I step out of my own company and I go and either volunteer with an organisation for a year or I go and get, I just go on a sabbatical. And which is what I wanted to do this time round. I'm not getting any younger and I really wanted to be within an organisation that I knew would proper wind me up. I've been looking at National Trust for a little while now, been coveting uh, a couple of little areas within the National Trust. I don't agree with the royal family. I don't agree with the Conservative Party. I don't agree with a lot of the, the stuff that goes on in the National Trust. But precisely because of that, I... Um, I've deliberately, I deliberately went out and I, I got uh, a contract with them. So currently I am the Midlands Cultural Programmes Consultant. So I work right across the Midlands, but I also I work um, across the UK. Indy outlined her reasons for wanting to work with the National Trust. There's a lot of people from a particular class in the National Trust. There's very few people like me that look like me, talk like me, have a lived experience like me, are willing to ask questions in a particular way as well. And by no means am I putting myself on some kind of, you know, oh, I know, I know better than everyone. We manoeuvre in different worlds and that world, lots of people manoeuvre within very comfortably and that, that's fine. But I deliberately wanted to be a bit of a, what's going on here? Why is that happening like that? And why can't you look at it this way? And that's a bit crap. What about this? Have you thought about this? And what about them? And da, 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 da. So it's having the tenacity and confidence to just ask those questions. And what I'm finding is a welcoming for me to be there. I don't mean that in a, God, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Oh, these people are welcoming this brown girl into the National Trust. Screw that. Um, I remember when I went for the interview, one of the, one of the um, interviewees said to me, well, why, why this job? And I was like, because I want a place at the table. I want a seat at the table. And quite frankly, from what I know of the National Trust, the National Trust needs people like me. Change can be a very difficult process for an institution. Indy spoke about her approaches to this in her role as a consultant. I'm quite comfortable with the uncomfortable. It's okay if things go wrong. It's okay if by something going wrong, there's learning in that and then it doesn't happen again. The thing is, though, people are just so reluctant to give something a go for the fear that it's not going to go right. And then nothing, you just kind of find this paralysis that you're in and nothing happens. Nobody does anything. And that's what I'm finding with the programming at National Trust. So here I am. As part of Indy's role as cultural programmes consultant, she has been looking at ways to diversify the programming of the National Trust. The programming at National Trust is very safe. It caters for one particular section of society. It's not connected, doesn't choose to connect with all this amazing programming that goes on, it just doesn't seem to be happening to the scale it could happen. So one of the things I talked about was the cultural program. The thing that National Trust does and has done historically is uh, celebrate Easter and celebrate Christmas, of which a lot of people celebrate. I don't. 
So this was really interesting. I remember um, going to one of the offices at the end of November and people were giving out Christmas cards and I was receiving Christmas cards and I was like, oh, that's really kind of you. Thank you very much. Um, I don't do Christmas, um, so please don't be offended if you don't get a card from me. But thank you very much. And just a look on, on people's faces of like, I'm not quite sure what, what I don't know what to say to that, got me thinking about how people respond to things like that. Diwali was mentioned as a way of uh, opening up that conversation. How can the National Trust look at their cultural programme differently? So I had the opportunity to to trial out some Diwali activity. Indy curated a programme of events titled Lighting Up that celebrated Diwali across four of National Trust's Midlands-based properties. The programme represented a number of new ways of working for the National Trust. Indy talked about implementing the programme and how she felt this work could be sustained. So yeah, it was it was really interesting, but what I noticed with the National Trust was having to kind of handhold the anxiety of the the introduction of a new culture in in the the realm of national trust where it's very monoculture the relevance for national trust will come more if their programming is done differently and if they work in partnership fully committed partnership with artists and organisations and those in the locality of a, of a property, for example. How is this work going to, to maintain? That's something that I, I constantly talk about, and it's about finding the home for that work, and not with a person either. Like, where is it written within the business plan of an organisation? Like, where is the partnership agreements that are being put in place? Where is the conclusiveness within budgeting coming from, from organisations to their partners and, and long-term programming? We'd talked specifically with Indy about her experiences with the National Trust, but we were interested to find out how she felt change could be meaningfully implemented across a wider context. Indy outlined what she feels is important in terms of implementing change and diversity in an institution. It comes down to the partners. It comes down to the people that you want to sit next to. And it comes down to that programming and not just programming as a band-aid, programming long term. I'm talking five to 10 years worth of programming here down the line. You've got people that are in those positions, those really already privileged positions where they are male, they are white or they're female and they're white. And the doors, the doors are going to be open already to them. And I just think given how um, there's lots of assumptions for people of colour or those with disabilities or those have a different uh, orientation or the way that people uh, may look in a particular way, there's assumptions that there's kind of the bias that people will come with. There's already a barrier. Those barriers are already there. So it's kind of extra work. What I've come to realise is that I've ignored the barrier even though it's there, I've just ignored it. I've just gone, whatever, this is what I'm doing. You're either on board or you're not. I'm not here to make you feel better about yourself. I'm not here 
to be the peppering that you need for your programming. I'm here because, you know, I want to be here. You you need me here, but also together we can create something really, really good. So there's something really interesting about the people that are in those positions that can make those decisions. They need to do those decisions and make those decisions authentically. And you can't just do it by going, oh, do you know what? I really want to, I really want to discuss why as a white male in this position, X, Y, and Z is not happening. Ask yourself really, truly what your position can do. If you're programming, if you've got a panel happening, if it's just all male and stale, then there you go. Who's going to actually interact and take you seriously? If you're going to events, like look at the programming, challenge the organisation that this, you know, your your platform or your programming or your panels are, are, are this and not all of this. I just think it's something about where the collective voice of... Um, constructively challenging is needed definitely and I think ever so more now given the fact that we're in this pandemic and everybody's having to like really reevaluate themselves and how they can present themselves and how they can participate and program and partner up definitely definitely we all have a responsibility in that. We've talked about institutions and how they can change it's clear that artists have their role in this change too we can take on board the wider definition of an artist that Fiona Venables proposes. We can be open and work with other artists, regardless of their status in the perceived hierarchy. As Indy Hunjan suggests, we can embrace feeling uncomfortable and making mistakes as necessary stages in learning, listening, evolving and instigating change. There is a danger, as Adam Sutherland points out, that a new, more diverse generation of artists and gallery staff are put into the same institutional mould by the same old institutions. New organisations don't need to look to the large institutions for guidance. They can use their position as agile grassroots organisations to be much more responsive to their immediate surroundings. There are already a lot of organisations throughout the country doing this. They don't have to be galleries or even arts organisations per se. Artists can directly connect with their audiences and communities by working with them. Many artists already are, sharing their creative impulse with those who do not consider themselves to be artists, but who share the same desire and need to make, create and problem solve in a hands-on way. Almost all institutions nowadays are adding to their exhibitions with programmes of activity. As artists, we can choose to work with those that are allowing visitors to take part in something genuinely creative, who care as much about the participation that can happen alongside an exhibition, or instead of an exhibition, in whatever form that might take. We can acknowledge the audience that we are making work for or making work with and we can continue to question how we work and who we work with. As Indy says, You know, your success is my success. My success is your success. I, I truly, truly believe that and we've got to be much, much more supportive of one another. But also, you know, be really mindful of your own kind of radar as well. Like really trust your gut instincts. Really, really listen if it's not sitting right, then you've got to question it and then question it again. Just be confident in your own ability. You're there for a reason. We're all, literally, we've got one go at this. And how privileged and lucky are we to be working in this sector? That's, that's how I see it. Back at the retirement party, things are winding down. 
It's time to go now. He's enjoying himself though, and is keen to open one more bottle. Just a quick nightcap. Dear director in the arts, I wish you all the best in your retirement and thank you for bringing in cakes. How we laughed at you being the only one allowed to retire as you have the only pension fund in the company. <laughs> I look forward to meeting the next man that will soon be filling your shoes. Yours faithfully, the constant female deputy director. Congratulations. We are so happy for us. Your work over the centuries has not gone unnoticed. We are so proud of all of our hard work in bringing about this moment. We wish you endless time to witness our great dismantling of your legacy. Thank you to Adam Sutherland and Grisdale Arts for commissioning this podcast. Huge thanks to Fiona and Indy for talking to us for this podcast. Fiona Venables is director of Milton Keynes Arts Centre. Indy Hungent is director of Carla Fool. She also works as cultural programmes consultant for the National Trust. Thanks to everyone who contributed to the retirement card for the white male in the arts. You heard, in order of appearance, Kathy Wade, Amelia Hawke, Sarah Taylor Silverwood, Faye Claridge, Mark Essen, Emma Price. The last message you heard was written by Cindy Smith and read by Leah Borromeo. Grisdale Arts Farmyard Radio. I'd like to thank everybody who's been involved in these podcasts, the immense amount of work that they've put into them. We're interested to hear your responses and your feedback. We are in the process of trying to develop a new institution, a new organisation, and we are looking for a very broad range of response to that, what that would look like, how that would operate. All the questions that have come up in these podcasts, we haven't come to an answer we're probably a long way from it. We need your help.